A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode in our ongoing series of great American Jewish cities, which tonight is about the Lower East Side, Manhattan in New York City. So this episode has been generously uh, sponsored as a dedication in honor of the seven generations of the sponsor's family who have called the Lower East Side home and in memory of Golda Basavram Halevi, who served as a matriarch for much of that span. So we go into the Lower East Side. It presents unique challenges that have uh, not yet been seen or experienced in the course of this series so far of Great American Jewish Cities, and uh, I don't think it will be experienced in any other city that we do. It's, It's very... Um, it's a challenge, primarily because there's just such an enormous story here. There's there's no way to even scratch the surface, um, even if you know. And hopefully, we will have a part two, and and uh, maybe even a part three. We'll see. We'll see. Of course, we'll accept sponsorships for that as well. But um, even with a part two and a part three. Um, it's it's uh, you know self evident that uh, you can't cover the history of the Lower East Side. It's in a comprehensive way. It's just too vast, and there's so many facets of it, and so many personalities, and just the the whole the whole package. So what we're going to try to do here is just uh, touch on a few of the points, give a little bit of an overview, and zoom in on a few of the. Uh, you know, just as examples, a few personalities and institutions and the facets of the Jewish life there that developed and and what it how it influenced and contributed to American Jewish life in general, which obviously it did more than any other place uh, in America. So if you know, so again, so if you if you uh, feel that someone or some place has been left out, they were. And it's not on purpose, and it's just because it's uh, understood that in the Lower East Side, it just can't uh, can't cover it all. Now, one of the things about the Lower East Side is we have to try to separate fact from fiction. There's a lot of lore and a lot of legend. It's one of those things you grow up with. You know, everyone grew up with Shmuel Kunda when Zaidi was young. 
uh, one and two and riding the trolley and Anshe Kartoffel and, and there's a certain uh, romantic uh, vision of life on the Lower East Side of that immigrant generation, even of the struggles that has been romanticized to a certain extent. And one of the things that we have to try to do is to separate fact from fiction. Um, perhaps no other place in America or maybe even the world evokes uh, such a connection and and romanticized memory and lore like the Lower East Side. And uh, and therefore, um, we get delve into them. Most people have some sort of connection, although it is interesting that the majority of, of the United States religious community, and I don't know exact numbers, but uh, today, the majority of the uh, United States religious community comes from the post-war, comes from the refugees and Holocaust survivors um, who arrived in the post-war. But on the other hand, almost almost all of American Jewry also has some sort of uh, connection and yichus to the Lower East Side. And it came in during the mass immigration. I know my own personal family in the 1890s, talking about at the end, the last decade of the 19th century, at the almost at the peak, right before the peak of the great uh, immigration. So there was... There was in back in in Galicia in the Austro-Hungarian Empire there was an army draft, and my ancestor of six generations ago, he wasn't interested in joining the Austro-Hungarian army like many others of his time, so he left his little shtetl in Galicia, which everyone else seemed to be doing also, and he arrives in the United States through Ellis Island, and his his story follows the exact textbook story of American Jewry that you'll read in any book. He settles on the Lower East Side and becomes a tailor, joins the garment industry like every other immigrant out there. The next generation becomes a fruit and vegetable wholesaler. And the third generation uh, became went into real estate. And then they move out of the Lower East Side already the next generation. They move to the upscale, out-of-town neighborhood of Borough Park in Brooklyn, which it was in the 1920s, which we'll, hopefully we'll get to when we speak about Borough Park. And then, of course, the next generation is already attending college and becoming a dentist and serving in the U.S. military during World War II and moving to Long Island in the post-war. So that is the story of American Jewry, and 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 that's and that's and and of course it starts in the Lower East Side. So that's that's um, that's what we're going to try to examine now. Another issue is is that there's so many um, institutions and people from whose origins and developed and lived on the Lower East Side, that really they deserve their own episodes. We're going to talk about um, the chief rabbi, the alleged chief rabbi of New York, or the attempted chief rabbi, is a better word, of New York City, um, Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef. He's someone who deserves his own episode. And the school named after him, RJJ, for sure, deserves its own episode, even though it's spent many years in the Lower East Side. So we'll, we'll mention it in passing, of course. Yeshiva Sarbanitzkochana, which later became Yeshiva College, and then YU, is also has its origins in the Lower East Side, and that will also have to be its own episode. Other examples might be Ramesha Feinstein, who lived obviously in Lower East Side, but uh, will hopefully be his own episode. And we spoke about the Jewish Mafia and people like Meyer Lansky, and uh, they operated on the Lower East Side, but uh, but they um, but they also have their own episode and. Perhaps we'll even talk about people like the Visker Ilui on his own also, or Yaakov Safsul, even though I'll mention him in this context as well. 
Abe Kahan, the Forverts, the newspaper, socialism, it all appears on the Lower East Side, but it's also worth a topic of its own, and many, many other things uh, as well. So there are some things that won't get mentioned at all. There are some things that will get mentioned in passing, and we'll, we'll get to it hopefully in another time. And there are some things we won't get to in part one, but we will get to in, uh, in part two. So the Lower East Side is, is of course, a neighborhood in Lower, in lower Manhattan, why is it lower? You know, a lot of people, a lot of uh, residents didn't like to call it lower. It's the east side. There's an upper east side. Well, there happens to be an upper east side near Central Park. But, um, but this is closer to lower Manhattan. But, um, but uh, the, the idea was that it, it, the origins of the immigrant part of the lower east side was actually with the German immigration, both Jewish and non-Jewish, in uh, the mid-1800s. And they many of them settled on the Lower East Side. In fact, the what, what used to be a famous uh, investment bank that's also part of history, the Lehman Brothers, um, on Wall Street until the 2008 crisis. Um, the Le- original Lehman Brothers, there are three or four of them, I don't remember all their names, but they lived for a time on the Lower East Side. Um, and... and there's other examples of German Jews uh, at the time. Joseph Seligman, I think, lived in the Lower East Side. And the Bloomingdale brothers, uh, Joseph and Lyman, eventually they opened Bloomingdale's, a uh, famous department store. So they, their origins were, were near the Lower East Side, in that, that area of, uh, of Manhattan. Either way, but, they, the, uh, but it, what, it, what it becomes more famous for is later on in the 19th century, when the immigrants from Eastern Europe, and it's not only Jewish immigrants, and it's not only from Eastern Europe, it uh, becomes a whole hodgepodge of, of all immigrants. And why the East Side? Why do the immigrants come there? Um, there is already tenement buildings, the big and famous or infamous uh, apartment buildings that were small and cheap and, uh, and convenient for housing. Um, places outside of Manhattan, parts of Brooklyn and the Bronx had not been yet developed. You have to also remember that until 1898, Brooklyn was its own city. If you moved to New York City, you were moving to Manhattan or the Bronx. But, um, but uh, the, the, Brooklyn was only incorporated as part of New York City in 1898, and the Brooklyn Bridge was only built... Um, uh, later on, also, in other words, in the 1880s, when the when the uh, immigrants arrived, Brooklyn is is a different area. It's 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 not easily accessible, and it's not even part of New York City. Um, so that also has to be kept in the context. Um, the neighbors on, on on the Lower East Side, uh, it's very ethnically diverse. A lot of Italians, Chinese, Irish, um, all all sorts. And the demographics of the neighborhood, it becomes the most densely populated area in the entire world in the late 1800s, early 1900s. By 1920, the Jews formed one of the largest ethnic groupings in the neighborhood. um, Just to to give you an idea, um, Warsaw, which was the capital of the Jewish world, and had the largest Jewish population in the entire world outside of New York, besides from New York City. So Warsaw at its peak had less than 400,000 Jews in the entire city. And in the Lower East Side in 1920, um, there were 400,000 Jews just in the neighborhood, not New York City, just in this little neighborhood of Manhattan, 
there are already 400,000 Jews. Talking about a population density that's not to be believed and not to be imagined. Um, it was a poor immigrant neighborhood. Jacob Rees, the famous uh, Danish writer, and and uh, he wrote his book, How the Other Half Lives, in 1890. It was based on poor Manhattan neighborhoods, primarily the Lower East Side, which led to reforms in the buildings of, of tenement houses, air and hygiene, and the settlement house, which became a major feature of Jewish life, on the lower, of, of all, of all uh, immigrant life in the Lower East Side. So that already is published in 1890, um, you know, no, when, when the Great Immigration is only 10 years underway. So you have the rise and the peak years. The Great Immigration begins in 1881. So they start piling in in the 1880s. Um, and then uh, following the Kishinev pogrom in 1903. So then you really, and the, and the failed revolution of 1904, 1905, 1906. So the, the, uh, the Jewish immigration is massive. Um, and... Uh, and it becomes in the last decade before World War One, it becomes almost you know over some years around a hundred thousand Jewish, just Jewish immigrants a year, and they're part of a massive uh, immigration wave at the time as well. So the peak years are in the pre World War One and immediately after World War One, also until the United States Congress puts immigration to a stop, and then the neighborhood eventually goes into decline, which we'll also hopefully get to. Now, the steady stream, the constant and intense and usually intensifying stream of immigrants into New York and into the Lower East Side is the key to understanding the history of the Lower East Side story, the culture, the challenges, the successes, the failures. It's very important. Anything it's, it, it, this is a place that does not develop like any other city. It, it, it's completely an immigrant story um, from 1880, when, it, when the story really begins, until the 1940s when it goes into decline, 1950s especially. Um, and, and it's not a normal, regular development of a Jewish neighborhood, a Jewish community like any other place. And the way, the key to understanding it is because the life of the Lower East Side was dependent on a constant stream of new immigrants arriving, and that's what made everything about it successful. Whether you in, in the in the in the in the sphere of of of, uh, of religion, of rabbis arriving, of shuls being successful and being built, of new yeshivas, and it was dependent on the new immigrants arriving. Whether it was in the in culture, the Yiddish theater or Yiddish literature whether it was socialism and readers of the forwards and, and members of the garment unions and labor, whether it was literally any aspect of, of the Lower East Side life, the only way to understand it is, is the constant stream of immigrants. And it was usually an increasing, and it seemed to be never stopping, which, which also presented challenges. And that was ultimately um, what, what, what made people want to leave and get out of the Lower East Side at, uh, at times. Um, but uh, and also what it led to his decline because as soon as those stream of immigrants stopped first in 1925 because of the uh, because of the uh, Johnson Act and um, and the, the, essentially there was you know just the immigrants weren't able to come anymore and uh, and again after World War II after the Holocaust when there were no more immigrants to come they were all gone 
except for the few survivors and refugees, but the millions of masses, the huddled masses yearning to be free, were gone. So then, uh, then there was no there was no place for the Lower East Side like it used to be. So now let's uh, that's a, a little bit of an overview. Of course, you can probably speak for an hour just in the overview, but I want to get into more specifics because that's probably more interesting, both to me and to our great uh, listeners. So we'll talk a little bit of the t- try to touch on all types of institutions and people and. Of course, we're not going to get to everyone now, part two, maybe part three. But we'll talk a little bit, a few of the shuls, famous shuls in the Lower East Side. Now, you have to understand, what does it mean, shuls? Um, there were literally, and with no exaggeration whatsoever, hundreds of shuls. Talking about hundreds of shuls, that means four or five hundred shuls, again, in one little neighborhood in Manhattan, not New York City, just in this little neighborhood. One of the more famous, and of course we're not going to talk about anything close to a small percentage of them, but uh, some of the more famous ones, the base Medrash HaGadol, which eventually was on Norfolk Street, but it didn't start on Norfolk Street. And, you know, the street, even the street names of the Lower East Side of Ludlow and uh, Broom Street and and uh, Delancey, um, all the uh, Clinton, Henry, uh, Pike Street, all the, the the even the names themselves have become part of uh, East Broadway. All the, have become part of uh, lore, Jewish lore, and part of Jewish history. Um, so, but it starts much earlier. It starts in the 1850s. Uh, incredibly enough, the first uh, leader of the shul, the rub of the shul, was a uh, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yosef Ash, who was a fighter for orthodoxy. He was very anti-reform, which in New York City in the 1850s was very strong. 1850s, we wouldn't expect an Eastern European Rav to be active in building a shul and fighting against the establishment reform. This is way before the uh, the Great Immigration even begins. Um, but he was a very powerful and strong leader during those early decades of the base Medrash HaGadol. Um, when he retired or left, so they thought about bringing in the Malbim, the, the great Rav of, of many Jewish towns in Romania, he was in Ukraine, he was in, buried in Kiev, he was in Poland, he was in Germany. Uh, Rameir Leibish, the Malbim, who was a very prominent leader and also active in, in, uh, in uh, battling for traditional Jewry in Eastern Europe and in Central Europe. So they were thinking of bringing him in as the rabbi of the Beis Medrash HaGadol and kind of making him the rabbi of New York, as the chief rabbi of New York, as it were. Uh, that didn't work out. The Malbim did not come. Um, and who did come was eventually they bring in their first and only attempt at becoming the chief rabbi. And that was the story of Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef. Now, just to put the story of Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef in context, because, you know, it's, it was just his yard site a few days ago. Um, but there are some misunderstandings. First of all, the way it's usually presented is that he was the first and only uh, chief rabbi of New York City. And that was his title officially, and then it's talk about, and, the, and everyone talks about it as a failed attempt, and they try to analyze why it failed and how it failed, and perhaps we'll discuss it as well. But as, as it, it, he wasn't really a chief rabbi of New York City, after you have to understand. He was the rav in the base Medrash Um He came in 1888, and the base Medrash Hagadol was the head of a group of congregations. Um, the, together with the Eldridge Street Synagogue, which actually broke off the base Medrash a year before, in 1887, 
Um, there's a dispute between uh, yeah, I'm sorry, it didn't break off in 1887, it broke off way earlier whenever Ash was there, but it built their own building, a big, beautiful, gorgeous building in 1887. I mean, either way, and 13 other shuls. Now, all these shuls were on the Lower East Side. So to call them the chief rabbi of New York City, um, there were other shuls in New York. Now, even though New York didn't include Brooklyn then, and we'll assume that it didn't include Staten Island uh, or Queens then either, obviously. So, but even just in Manhattan, there were many other neighborhoods where there was a Jewish presence uh, at the time, and they obviously were not included. Even on the Lower East Side, not every single shul was represented. This was a group of shuls, United Hebrew Congregations, led by the Beis Medrash Agadol, which was 15 shuls, and they appointed him rabbi. So it was not really a chief rabbi of New York City. That was the title they gave him, and that was the idea. That didn't work out. Maybe we'll get to that again soon. Um, but in the context of Israel Shagadol, so um, one of the next rabbis was a fascinating individual. It was Rabbi Dr. Benjamin Fleischer, who, was, who was, had a doctorate, obviously very educated, and wrote on a lot. He wrote history, he wrote on all kinds of things, and he was involved in uh, kashrus disputes, as was the custom of many rabbis at the time, to try to make some order on the kashrus, which was what uh, did Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. And um, there was total chaos in the uh, in the uh, in the butcher in kosher meat and and that whole issue. So Fleischer had had a similar issue, and um, he was the leader of Beis Medrash Agadol for many years as well. Uh, other shuls there were the, was the Bialystoker shul, um, founded by a group from Bialystok in Poland, and uh, and they that was also a very prominent shul. It's one of the few active, still active shuls on the on the Lower East Side. Ruven Feinstein uh, until until recently Davin there when he lived on the Lower East Side earlier uh, in, po- in the post-war, not 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 in the pre pre uh, not in the interwar period, but in the post-war there's a a rav there, very prominent rabbi, Rabbi Yitzhak Aaron Singer, um, and the shamish of the shul, the one who ran it, the gabai, the shamish, the one who ran the shul, was a slabotka talmud, a survivor of the Holocaust from the Kovna Ghetto, a fellow by the name of Rabbi Sian Lapiansky, whose son is Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky, the Rashid in Silver Spring. Um, so he was the he was in the Bialystoker shul many years. And, um, and one of the members of the Bialystoker pre-war was the Siegel family, whose son, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, was the mobster, the famous uh, gangster um, who, um, who grew up on the Lower East Side. His father was an Orthodox Jew member of the Bialystoker. And when Bugsy was bumped off by the mob for going over budget with the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas, and uh, and so his father got a plaque up for him in the Bialystoker for his yard site lamp, and and that's still there till today. There was the Stanton Street Shul, there was the Eldridge Street Synagogue, which I mentioned. There was a break off of the basement of Shagodal, and in 1887 they built this big, beautiful building. These early shuls, you have to understand, were also community centers. They were chesed and Sdaka organizations. They saw themselves that since they were the first immigrants that built themselves up in the 1870s and 1880s, that they saw themselves as responsible for the incoming immigrants. And therefore, they saw themselves not only as a religious center, but as a 
as a social center, as a tzedakah, to give out before Pesach and for Yantif and to take care of the matzahs and to take care of the poor and to literally take responsibility. And they started Shagal, for instance, and in a certain way also the Eldridge Street uh, Shul saw themselves as unique in the fact that in the 1890s and the early 1900s, the hundreds of shuls that developed were very sectarian. They belonged to a certain town, like I said, the Bialsucker, and there, there were literally hundreds of towns um, that were named for shuls, shuls that were named for towns in the Lower East Side, or for Hasidism, or for a certain area, or for a certain rabbi. They were very, very sectarian. And here, these original shuls, they said, we belong to everyone, and we're here for everyone. And there was a certain way they were open to that, and they uh, attempted to help uh, incoming immigrants which says a lot about how the Lower East Side developed. It developed as an immigrant community, like I mentioned. And here, the immigrant mentality is that we, the earlier waves of immigrants have to help out the later waves of immigrants who are just incoming now. Um, the Beisman Shagadl was bought off of a church, and they made it into a shul, whereas the Eldridge Street Shul was one of the first ones that was built as a shul. I mean, they're already established. They had a lot of money. They were able to build this big, gorgeous Shul, there had a famous Rav, Rabbi Vrom Aaron Yudlevich, who was uh, learned in Valazhin, and uh, like Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, like a lot of the other Rabbanim there in New York at the time. There was another rabbi there who came a little later, Rabbi Yehuda Edelson, who was a alumnus of the Mir Yeshiva in Poland, and he actually was one of the early members of the Kovna Koilo, and he was the rabbi in, uh, in one, you know, prominent in the Agudas Rabbanim, um, whose headquarters were on the Lower East Side and whose early leaders were on the Lower East Side. Um, and uh, today the Eldridge Street Synagogue actually has a museum of Jewish history and a history of the Jews on the Lower East Side. So it's a, an important place still today. One of the more unique shuls on the Lower East Side is the Kehila Kadeshi Yanina, which is, is a, belongs to the, the, uh, the community of Jews called the Romaniot Jews. Now the Romaniot Jews are Greek non-Sephardic. Uh, you know, most Greek Jews before the war were Sephardic Jews. They came after the expulsion. But there was the original, and they, these Jews settled in Italy, in Greece, and in, in, in Turkey, also to a certain extent, uh, Jews who descended from the the uh, the exiles after the second base of Mictish that, that Titus brought over um, as slaves, as captives, and they settled down in in uh, in the Greece area, and they were not Ashkenazic, and they were not Sephardic. They were a unique one. And this shul, this Romaniot shul on the Lower East Side, is the only one in the entire Western Hemisphere that belongs to these type of Jews. There was another famous shul was the the Pike Street shul, which I'll get to. Hopefully, we'll have time to get back to that. The Polish Shtibel, who many described as as a place where it never the people were always learning and studying Tyra there, talking about a packed shul where around the clock it was open twenty four seven and through the night people were studying through the day people were studying and these were you know poor immigrant Jews who who uh, kept uh, you know it's also somewhat tragic most of their children and grandchildren were no longer uh, dedicated to a traditional Jewish life but that was the reality of 
raising children on the Lower East Side, where you have a, a father might be studying Torah with a long beard all day in the Polish Yeshiva, but the kid is going to public school. Was, there were very few, if any, yeshivas, and, uh, and exposed to everything else that was going on. There was the Teferis Yerushalayim Shul, which hopefully we'll get back to the Mariam Polar, where Ritz, Rabbein Yitzchukhan, started before it was Ritz, when it was still Eitz Chaim, in the 1880s, in 1886, when Rabbein Stern, uh, he started Eitz Chaim, a student of the Chavetz Chaim. And uh, so he started the first yeshiva in New York. So it was in the Mariam, the basement of the Mariam Polar Shul. And eventually evolved into Rabbi Yisrael Chanan. Um, wow. And of course, we have uh, MTJ. Hopefully get back to that. I want to move on a little bit to one of the most uh, famous personalities. And I want to bring out something from the fact that he's famous, but we want to take a, a different angle on it. One of the famous personalities of the Lower East Side was Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman, who as a young eight-year-old boy, he came from Slutsk with his family, and they settled on the Lower East Side. His family went back. He never went to yeshiva. He was never a rabbi. He was a balabas. He worked in furs and uh, in the in fur industry and later on in other businesses. And But he was an amazing person. Now, everyone supposedly read the book All for the Boss. And, amazed, you know, happens to be, you know, still one of my favorites after hundreds of other books that I've read since then. But um, but it's it, it's an amazing memoir. Now, there are literally endless memoirs that provide insight into daily life on the Lower East Side. A lot of memoir literature about the growing up there and living there. And when we think about a book like Law for the Boss, people primarily, primarily think about the Achnasas Archim of, of Rabbi Yisrael Herman, of him hosting Gedele Yisrael, great Torah leaders, about her experiences in the Mir. But as it happens, it provides much insight into daily life on the Lower East Side as well. Uh, and I'll just want to point out a few that may have been overlooked in the greater story of All for the Boss. Um, just about the shuls, that we're talking a lot about the shuls until now. That is the main theme of part one, it seems. Um, the shuls that Rabbi Yaakov Herman was involved in. For one, he asked the author of the book, Rucham Hashain, his daughter, to deliver chalas every week to three shuls for Shalashudis, the Teferis Yerushalayim shul which he was very involved with, both the yeshiva, which eventually becomes MTJ, and, and the shul. He, they, she relates a story there about how he's davening in Teferi's Yerushalayim on Shabbos morning. He was actually the, was the, was the chazan there, Yom Narayim, and Rosh Yom Kippur in Teferi's Yerushalayim. In any event, it was Shabbos, and he sees that there's a rebbe from the Teferi's Yerushalayim yeshiva who got an aliyah for the Torah on Shabbos morning. And he noticed that he didn't look into the Sefer Torah. So he said, someone who doesn't look into a Sefer Torah, I don't know, it looks funny. So he follows him, he shadows him after Shul, and he sees that he goes into a store and buys a pack of cigarettes on Shabbos, right? So I don't know what was worse, buying cigarettes and smoking or doing it on Shabbos. But in any event, he got the guy fired. How could we have a Rebbe in the yeshiva that smokes cigarettes on Shabbos? Again, that gives an insight into um, Jewish life in the Lower East Side in the 1920s. Here you have a guy who attends shul Shabbos morning, an Orthodox shul. He gets an aliyah. He's a rebbe in a yeshiva, obviously an elementary school. And he smokes on Shabbos. Why? Why does he smoke on Shabbos? He doesn't have a, clearly doesn't have one of those jobs that you can't, uh, that don't come on Monday if, you're, if you don't show up on Saturday because he's a rebbe in the yeshiva. 
But uh, maybe that was the only job he had. But he wasn't a Shabbos observer before that. You don't. We don't know. But it it provides insight. There was another shul that that that, that she delivered chalos to was the Anshe Maimed shul, and that happens to be where the Visker Ilu Yerbiyankiv Safsel, who was one of the great genius Talmud Chacham, who lived in the Lower East Side for decades, um, a fascinating figure who hopefully we'll try to get to more. And according to the book. The Vizker Ilui, who was a genius beyond description, and obviously a much greater Talmud Chacham than Yaakov Yosef Herman, who was a self-taught Talmud Chacham, but nothing like the Vizker Ilui. But it seems that the Vizker Ilui relied on Yaakov Yosef Herman for kashrus-related issues, which is also interesting. That Yaakov Yosef Herman was so re- seen as a as the as the person who knowledgeable in religious issues on the Lower East Side that he was the go-to person. And it seems that he even made Rabbi Yaakov Safsul's the Liskerilis Shidduch. It was the Makover Shul also, and he happens to be, he was affiliated, like I said, with the Tferis Yerushalayim, and the Pike Street Shul. The Pike Street Shul is where the Ridbaz, Rabbi Yaakov David Volovsky, gave his speech before he left the United States, where Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman's father-in-law, Rabbi Shmuel Yitzchak Andron, who came from Dvinsk and, and lived on the Lower East Side, and was tried to struggle to make a living with his uh, with his home home insurance business that he ran from his dining room table. And because Rav Shmuel Yitzhak Andrin was so inspired by the Ridbaz's speech about the importance of investing in Jewish education, and that's the only way to ensure a Jewish future in the United States, and you have to open schools and yeshivas, and you can't just rely on, on, on them having the after-school Talmud Torah after public school and uh, and Shmuel Yitzchak Andron is so inspired after hearing this shul, this speech in the Pike Street Shul, that he decides to open RJJ, the the school, the, one of the first and and the one of the most prominent yeshivas on the Lower East Side, it literally changed the face of Jewish education in America, most important schools. And he founded in 1903. His close friend was Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef, the chief rabbi who had just passed away the year before, and. Uh, and he opens the yeshiva of Shmuel Yitzchak Andron. He was a Zionist. So he moved to Israel in 1922, but members of his family continued leading the school for many years. And it was a, a, a extremely important institution that was uh, started from a speech of the Ridbaz in the Pike Street Shul. Now, um, she relates a story there that they sold tickets on Shabbos in front of the shul for to he, come in and hear a chazan the cantorial type of concert for davening in Shul Shabbos morning, and uh, how her father, Rebecca Zerman, tried to go in without a ticket, and when they finally let him in, he goes up and made a ruckus, you're raising money to support the shul by selling tickets on Shabbos, how could you do that? And again, it gives us an insight to the shul. By the way, the Beis Medrash HaGadol paid uh, their rabbis one-fifth of the salary that they paid their chazanim. They tried to import, a lot of the shuls on the east side imported the greatest cantors from Europe, paid them fortunes of money to, it was cant, cantorial music was very in style then, and all the best chazanim came to New York, and they and they uh, and it was it was very, very popular. It was like the entertainment at the time. You know, the entertainment on the east side was either stickball or boxing. A lot of Jews loved boxing on the east side. They go, either they were, many of them were involved in the sport as boxers or trainers or referees or coaches and whatever. But a lot of Lower East Side Jews, very religious ones even, would go to watch boxing matches. So you didn't have a lot of options for entertainment, so Chazanus was, uh, was one of them. Um, 
And Yaakov of Herman, again, to go back to that, he gave shiurim in the Anshe Maimed Shul, in the base Medrash HaGadol, in Tferes Yishalayim, in an unnamed shul on Henry Street for Hashomer Hadati, which was a branch of Hapoel HaMizrachi, young working guys, and he gave he gave shiurim for them. He gave a shiur in the Madison Street Shul. She has an amazing story, a Hishana Rabba story, the night of Hishana Rabba, that her mother's kashering chickens, and she has a question about a pupik, if it's kosher, you know, you had to kosher the chickens on your own, obviously, in those days. She bought it in the, in the market on Hester Street. And, uh, and she sends Rucham Shane and she points out, again, in there in the book, she says, she writes, I think it was even in parentheses, she says, uh, in 1930, my mother had no qualms about sending me a young teenage girl in the middle of the night, You're talking about 2, 3 in the morning, on, in the middle of the streets of New York City because the Lower East Side streets were completely safe. So you get there another insight into what life was like. And then she goes to her father, she goes to the Teferis Rishlaim Shul he's learning, and she describes that it's a full-packed based Medrash learning, Hashan Rabba night. And then they go to a Rabbi Skinder, who doesn't remain named beyond that in the book, to ask the question, so who was this Rabbi Skinder? He was also, it seems, a rabbi in the Lower East Side. So Rabbi Skinder was the Rav of the Pike Street Shul for 25 years. He was also a Zionist. He moved to Israel, and, uh, and, and he was a prominent rabbi in, in uh, Paisik on the Lower East Side. So the first young Israel was actually on the Lower East Side. Um, uh, one of the famous individuals there was uh, in the basement of Shagadol, who was involved in many initiatives in young Israel and a lot of other initiatives, was Harry Fischel, the great philanthropist, who also deserves his own episode. Um, the unofficial rabbi of the young Israel was David Zussman Stern, who would walk in from Williamsburg. He was the son of Rebbeisiv Stern, who was the founder of Eitz Chaim, would eventually evolve into Ritz, the Talmud of the Chavitz Chaim. And another son of this Rebbeisiv Stern was Lippmann Stern, who was a son-in-law of Rabbi Yaakov Zerhan. Right? Um, and uh, and the, the, what's interesting, just one last thing from, from the All for the Boss about the insights of the Lower East Side, she describes when she comes back after she had been in the Mir in Poland for a bunch of years, and she moves back to the United States in 1938, and she settles down as a you know married couple with a child near her parents on the Lower East Side, so she describes that she mentions this like in passing that her husband Rabbi Shishain, goes to the Kailal of Rabbi Yitzchak Schneider on the Lower East Side in the in the, in one of the shuls there. On what, and this is one of the first Kailals in America. So how many people know that? That there was this Kail on the Lower East Side of Rabitzik Schneider, that was one of the first Kailals in America. Um, and later on, she's shopping for cheese in the grocery store, and she meets Rebetzin Simba Feinstein, Rabbi Feinstein's wife. And she said, oh, I see that if the Rebetzin Feinstein is buying this cheese, then it must be kosher. So Rebetzin Feinstein starts laughing. She says, how do we know it's kosher? They didn't have the labels in those days um, of Vechsherim, of the, the certification. She said, when we came from Russia to the Lower East Side, your father, again, Moshe Feinstein, the great Rabbi Paisik, but he relied on the Balobas, on Yaakov Herman, who was the go-to guy for all religious issues and for kosher's issues. He said, your father told us which cheeses are kosher when we came to New York. So uh, that, uh, that played a, a prominent role. I see that we've covered about uh, a quarter of what I had written, which everything I written barely scratched the surface. And from what I wrote, 
we covered about a quarter of it, but I have to end part one here. So we'll have to continue with part two very soon. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean and uh, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites and I hope you enjoyed.